listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wezar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward to solve the greatest challenge one in ten of our children face, child abuse. Today's focus is the science of storytelling. In talking about the work of responding to child sexual abuse, we can't minimize the impact, but neither can we treat its victims as irreparably broken. It's a challenge. How do we speak to the seriousness of the trauma while also providing hope and reducing stigma? And how do we get people to engage in conversations about such an uncomfortable topic? I spoke with Nat Kendall Taylor, CEO of the Frameworks Institute. He's a psychological anthropologist who works to change the conversation on social issues. We discussed what makes members of the public recoil from talking about child sexual abuse. We also talked about how our own messages could help reframe the issue in a way that gives ordinary people hope that they can do something about it. What should we change about our messaging to starve this epidemic of the conditions it needs to thrive? What is the story that we should be telling? So when you think about all the research that you all have been a part of over the last you know, decade or so that relates to child abuse in some way or childhood trauma, what has been the most surprising result to you? I don't know if, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's surprising, but it is the most important one, which is this kind of two-pronged finding about um, how little people actually understand about the concept and how much they are reliant on stereotypes and how unwilling uh, and whatever the opposite of eager is, um, people are to actually engage in a conversation or certainly um, in thinking about the issue. So and that reluctance is what? Like distaste or fear or their own you know, histories of trauma? What is that about that people are so avoidant, really? as you're describing. Well, I mean, I think it relates to the way that people understand, you know, the limited understandings that people have of it as this, um, and, and I'm not saying that some of these understandings aren't true, but this um, horribly affecting, kind of disgusting um, situation that is perpetrated by monstrous individuals who can never be nor should be understood as human beings, right? Um, and so if that's what you think is the primary cause of something becomes very difficult to to engage in it. Um, and I think there's obviously also very strong uh, taboos in our culture and other cultures around this issue that makes people feel that if they were to engage, it would somehow, um, some of the, uh, the taboo would kind of rub off and, and stick. Uh, so there's almost a them. superstitious aspect of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, like a lot of our thinking about social issues, it's based, I wouldn't say superstition, but kind of like folk models of psychology and, and mm-hmm. understanding about um, human behavior and the causes of social problems. I mean, we see, I think child sexual abuse, of the issues that I've studied, is the most poignant and powerful mm-hmm. in its ability as an issue to get people to immediately disengage and be unwilling to 
to kind of think in an engaged way about it. I mean, and we've done work on some pretty dire social problems. Um, and I think it's the, it's kind of this, the combination of kids and sex and abuse and all of these things that kind of come together in this um, incredibly powerful, um, visceral sense that people, I mean, the good question is, is that avoidance kind of active and in, intentional, or is it more kind of implicit and, and unintentional? What do you think? What's your gut? I think on? it's both. I mean, that's yeah. the easy answer to all these things, and it's the true answer, probably. I think in some ways, it's um, our revulsion for these kinds of issues is at a probably an implicit and um, unintentional level, where the recoil is is pretty automatic. Um, but I think some of it's. I, mean, I don't think you can attribute all of it to that level of automaticity. Do you think that there are ways in which the way we as professionals talk about it actually contributes to that, or at least doesn't lower the barrier to someone wanting to learn more about that? In other words, I guess I'm asking you, are there some things we should stop doing today (laughs) in the way that we talk about this issue, which might make it more available to people as as an issue for discussion? Yeah, so there's a couple of questions in that question um so i'll kind of parse them and it's all interesting um so i want to make sure i get to both the um both aspects of the question so i think the part of the problem part of people's inability to have serious sustained conversations and thinking about the issue i mean some of it is related to that kind of visceral revulsion but there's other things going on there as well. And I think that the field actually plays into unintentionally a lot of these, these other things. So one thing that keeps, um, that keeps us from having uh, really kind of engaged discussions is the fact that it's very easy to see um, children who are experiencing these issues as, as those kids over there, right? And uh, the way that the field typically describes patterns of Abuse can kind of feed into that that othering that happens. But as we know this from not just frameworks research, but from across the social, cognitive, and behavioral sciences, that once someone is able to, to otherize and distance in that way, it becomes very, uh, becomes very easy to not engage with the issue. Can you give an example of that? So for our listeners thinking about what would that sound like in a message? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's both, and this is the, the tricky bit with otherizing and why it's such a... Uh, why it's such an issue and a problem is because it is kicked or triggered by really teeny little stuff like pronouns, those kids. Mm-hmm. Right? So any positionality that you can do in right. your pronouns, instead those, of our kids, <laughs> instead of ours yeah. or them instead of we. Yes. Uh, so it's it it derives from from little things that we do with our language at a very micro level that allow us to distance, divide, and be distinct from people over there and our, quote-unquote, our people. Mm-hmm. But it's also um, kind of more overt, probably noticeable things in that a lot of times the the values that organizations would use to frame these issues are not inclusive values. They kind of feed into the problem of people being able to, to otherize. So it's about addressing disparities or it's about um, I'm trying to think of some of the other values, but normally the values that are used on issues like this are not ones that 
help people see themselves in the in the situation. Well, that's a really interesting point that you're making, especially around this language around addressing disparity, because that's so common in human service language. I mean, we yeah. do want to make sure that everyone has access to services, that everyone who needs something has access to it. But if we, but are you saying that if we use a term like addressing disparities, even we're even in that we're essentially otherizing somebody. It's that disparate group over there who needs our help, and we're somehow separate from that. Yeah, I mean, there's a a number of important points to make there. I think chief among them is that what you just said is true. Like disparities need to be addressed, right? So there's a social analysis there. There are disparities; they are not fair, and they need to be addressed. Then there's the communications analysis, which is if that's the lead, if that's the frame through which people come to your message, um, it's hard to see your interests if you are not part of a group that is experiencing disadvantage or disparate outcomes to kind of connect with those. Is that because we're sort of relying on people's altruism? Do you know what I mean? That when you're talking about a disparity that you want to address, in part what you're calling on people to do is feel bad about something that hasn't happened to them. Whereas that's a different thing, I think, than seeing a problem as one in which you're deeply involved of in by virtue of being a human being on the planet where all families and all communities struggle with these things. Yeah, I mean, so um, let me just give you a val- let me give you an example of the kind of a value that that flips that mm-hmm. um, that is a more productive way. Maybe not into issues of of child sexual abuse or the prevention thereof, because I actually don't know the answer to that because we haven't done that that work as of yet. Um, but you can talk about so we're doing a lot of work on housing right now, just as a out okay. there totally different issue. So housing is an issue, obviously, that is characterized by massive disparities, many of them uh, racial and, and class and, uh, and socioeconomic status in, in origin. So you can talk about, um, you can use the value of access to affordable housing or fairness or, you know, the fact that there are disparate, you know, people of different groups have different access to housing. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can talk about the value of interdependence, that all of our well-being is contingent upon everyone doing well. That's a, a different value that pulls people who may not be experiencing housing difficulties into the conversation in a way that is engaging and kind of actively backstops or pre- prevents people from um, otherizing and saying, I don't have housing problems. That's the problem of those people over there. And therefore, I'm not part of this conversation. So when you think about that, aside from sort of otherizing, it's those kids over there, those families who are dealing with childhood sexual abuse or child abuse in general, do you see other ways that we talk about this work that you think, well, that's really well-intentioned, but it's not having its intended impact at all? Yeah, no, I mean, the big one is um, kind of, so, and this comes from work that we've done on child abuse and neglect, primarily in the UK, but I think patterns are very similar here is that a tendency of the field and it is well-intentioned and to some degree it's logical is people um people working on these issues understand that my job or my advocacy or my ability to kind of cut through and be persuasive is going to be increased dramatically if i can just convince people of how big and bad and awful and prevalent these issues are so for um organizations working in the uk They've, for the last, I'm going to be kind and say 50 years, but it's probably more like 100 years, um, have focused on two things in their messaging. So prevalence and horribleness. (laughs) How prevalent these problems are, 
data, 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 how horrible they are, normally an example of child sexual abuse as the most kind of visceral and horrible of the, of the bunch. And, and for a long time, a lot of resources were focused on those two things. The problem is that if that is all you do and you continue to beat that drum, you convince people that it's prevalent and horrible, but you leave them there. And if all I understand is that, wow, this is horrible and wow, this is prevalent, I have no ability to see this as something that can be solved. Right, you feel hopeless at the you end of that. You feel hopeless. So that trigger of prevalence and horrible becomes a trigger, an invitation to disengage. It's horrible a- problem, no solution. And when that happens, the result is I'm, I'm going to put my my energy elsewhere because I don't see anything that can It's so interesting that you say this because I think both the UK and the US have this problem. And I think the way that we came to it was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago in this country, I'm not sure people did think it was terribly horrible or that it happened at all Yeah. or really infrequent. So I do think that child abuse organizations, including our own, really did spend some time on, you know, you could almost think of it as consciousness raising, right? Like in any other grassroots movement to go, this is a big problem. But somehow it's that pivot, right, that we're still trying to turn the corner on, that pivoting from it's a big, horrible problem to, and what is it that we're saying we can do about it? Which leads me kind of to another question I have for you. You know, I've been watching this, the measles outbreak, which I'm not diminishing the importance of the measles outbreak. It's terrible. I'm sorry kids are suffering and ill and all those things. But this is really being treated and is like a public health emergency and crisis. And we're talking about five or 600 kids so far have been infected with measles. So serious public health problem, a lot of media attention, a lot of public outcry, all of those kinds of things. And I just, it's interesting, sort of child sexual abuse scandals keep breaking into the media space over and over again. But you don't get the same sense of a urgency about a response it feels to me and b you don't have a sense that there's a ready solution you know it's not like well take a vaccination and you're going to be all better Um, or we're going to give you a little treatment and you'll be all better so why is it that this issue childhood sexual abuse in particular it just seems like we've never reached that same sense of urgency with the general public that You know, there's a groundswell of support for doing something big, doing it universally, and following through on that in some way. Well, I think the the answer to that question, my my thinking, is that, and you put your finger on it, it's the difference in the understandability of the response. So with the MMR, with measles, mumps, rubella, with the vaccination and the anti-vaxxers and all that stuff that's going on, there is an urgency. Kids are dying and there's an added urgency, which is this kind of understanding of the, the public health kind of pickle line, right? The line, the, the level of vaccination that you fall below before bad, bad stuff that's much worse than five or 600 kids dying starts happening. So there's this urgency, but there's also this incredibly neat efficacy which is the answer is parents vaccinate your kid. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's it's super I mean it's about as efficacious as, as you can, it can be. Get, right? Yeah. A jab, you're done. And the corollary on child sexual abuse, which I think is the biggest challenge that the field faces, is there's no vaccination. 
It's so to true. use a metaphor, right? There's no, there is no neat, well understood answer, solution that addresses the problem with the same level of immediacy and um, and co- completeness well, and that, that exists. Well, and simplicity, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the cure for childhood sexual abuse is not something that can be administered in 30 seconds and whatever. Right. But I also wonder if some of it is, you know, when we think about this, uh, you know, taking the measles analogy kind of again, you know, there's been a lot of talk about herd immunity. Yep. When you have a, a, when everybody has been treated for something, then there's some, um, that in and of itself is a form of prevention in terms of making it much less likely that something can proliferate. And what I feel that we haven't sort of cracked the code of is that for childhood sexual abuse. You know, we all think it's terrible, but do we think it's terrible enough that we've created a culture in which it can't thrive? And it seems like the answer to that is no so far. So this is a really, really interesting and, and good question. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, which is, that there was a time in the United States and in the UK where people didn't understand this to be a bad and nor prevalent problem. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, my critique of the field was was insensitive. And um, I do think that they've been successful in instilling a sense that this is a prevalent problem and that it's bad. But it's the lack of a 2.0 strategy. Yes, we've and also the, instilled hopelessness. It's the persistence like. <laughs> of beating the strategy yeah. 1.0 drum. Yeah. And so in our work in the UK, that's kind of yeah. what the report was called and what some of what we've written is about. It's like how you, you said the pivot, and that's kind of how we talk about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've, okay, prevalence and, and badness, check, check. Start, start doing the next thing that you need to do to actually get people to change their understandings and be with you on solutions. What and are, so it's, it's that pivot. So... I think that's a an important point that you made that I want to follow up that I wanted to follow up on just to be clear that I think the resources spent over the last fifty years on on prevalence and on awfulness are not resources that were ill spent. It's just that now is a time to to shift because mm-hmm. you don't need to keep doing that work um, in the same with the same level of emphasis and resources. I think mm-hmm. so. I think part of the problem is that there isn't the equivalent of a vaccination in terms of people's thinking about solutions. But the other part of the problem is the way that people understand the cause of child mm, sexual abuse mm, is also mm. inefficacious because it's flawed people. It's horrible monsters. And so what's the, if, if the problem is embedded in the failure of human morals and nature in, in a few, what's the What's the solution? I mean, you can get to some solutions. They probably aren't the solutions that the field advocates, but it, it's also not a, a very um, motivating or agentic way of understanding what is causing this problem. Well, first of all, I mean, do you feel like we have a good grasp of what causes it? So this is, yeah, I mean, this is this to me is the problem with the problem with doing communications research on the prevention of child sexual abuse, but also the really exciting thing, is yeah. is that I don't... So to do good communications research, you have to have things that you're trying to communicate. So to say that you're trying to get people to better understand the causes and solutions, preventative solutions of child abuse, child sexual abuse, is predicated on the idea that there are some that you want people to understand. 
And in this work that we did probably three years ago now with a group in the UK, this is this was the stumbling block. So you could set up a, an effective piece of messaging that supplied people with urgency. Like this is a bad problem that was really easy to do because of all the work that's been done. It was just kind of cue it and people were there. But then the eff- efficacy, the kind of solutions component, what, what do you tell people can be done? I did not feel like yeah. from the field's perspective that there was good science and consensus around that. And as a communications organization that is evidence-based and, and kind of translational in its approach, it's not our job to, like, we have to have things to communicate <laughs> from a field for communications to work and be effective. And so there was a bit of a feeling of frustration and uh, on everyone's part and kind of whether or not we were we were what's the what's the phrase having the court having the the cart in front of the horse in terms of trying to communicate before there before kind of the science was there when it came to solutions i think it's an interesting point to make i do think people believe that the science is there in terms of once someone has been victimized what's likely to help so i think you can work with messaging around that but in terms of what is the root cause? Why yep. do some people sexually abuse other people? Yep. I think the jury's still out for science. I mean, yep. we know with adolescents who have sexual behavior problems, we know more and more about that. Yep. Although I wouldn't say we know everything there is to know. Yep. But I think for adult sex offenders, we really don't. Yep. And I can see the difficulty when you're trying to point people and the way that communications works to, you know, here's sort of the three things you need to know about this. Well, one of the key things that we need to know, we still don't know because the science hasn't answered the question ultimately about that. You know, so that this work isn't sort of fruitless in the meantime, though, and when you think about um, one of the things that you said that really struck me was we spent a lot of time, when we conveyed the seriousness of the trauma around childhood sexual abuse, I think one of the things that we left people with the idea of, and I see this with reporters all the time where I'm having to go, No, a person is not hopelessly broken and cannot be healed. You know, no, a person does not have to go with their life ruined for the rest of their life. I mean, that's a possible life outcome, and we have data to support that. But there's also data to support evidence-based treatments being very highly effective and changing people's life trajectory. So I guess my question is, how do we continue to convey the seriousness of the trauma that's associated with this while also... Um, not sending this message of hopelessness and helplessness, which I think really just adds to the stigma of childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. So this is kind of the the ultimate framing move when it comes to the science of early childhood more generally. And the science basically is trying to say early matters, but so does later. In other words, the there are periods and windows of, of childhood where kids are biologically incredibly sensitive to experiences and if an adversity occurs during that period it's it's worse than it cur- than it occurring in in other periods mm-hmm. that are less mm-hmm. open and, and plastic but that science also holds very strongly that there is I don't want to say no such thing but damage done is damage done is not a, a helpful aphorism mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to the science because there's this there's this little thing, and I think this is I think this is the answer. Communicating it is very difficult, but it's the power and the promise of plasticity. So mm-hmm. that that science says both that there are 
periods in which development and children, people are biologically sensitive, more biologically sensitive to experiences than other periods. Early childhood, adolescence, when someone becomes a parent, like mm -hmm. those are periods where biological systems are under construction. But importantly, that science also says that plasticity, both in a structural and in a functional way, does not stop, right? Is an over the life course feature of the biology that we've developed, that we've evolved with. So that it's the idea, the, the problem in terms of communications is if you, if you go too heavy on one, the importance and power of the significance of early adversity and you go hard on that, you make the mistake of creating an understanding in which, you know, kids are fully baked by five, and if they've had horrible experiences, there's nothing you can do. On the other hand, if you go completely to kind of unbridled potential for change, always and forever, then early doesn't matter. And why would you put any re resources in it? Because you can always fix things later. So it's this balance between um, the importance of early, but the ongoing nature of plasticity and the ability to meaningfully address experiences that occur. You know, what early. strikes me about that is that what you said is very important and also very difficult to say in a 30 it second soundbite, right? It is. Obviously, it took, me, yeah. it took me two minutes to say it. Um, so there's this um, quote, a lyric from Bob Dylan, which okay. I think is the best summary Excellent. of this. I love it. So it's that you can always go back, but you can't go back all the way. Ah, that's um, good. Which that's is, good. it's kind of, you know. It's intuitive for one 40 thing, years, right? 50 yeah. years of developmental science <laughs> in, in, a, in a lyric. Come on, right. um, but I mean, I think that's the, yeah. it's a really complicated nuance, tension in the science. And what has happened, I think, frequently is that when you err on the side of one, you sacrifice the other and it's hard to get people to hold both of those perspectives the importance of early and the ongoing nature of plasticity in mind at once so let me throw another one out yeah. uh, to you that's a little bit of a brain teaser but i feel like it it, it sort of runs that same um, line where people are trying to figure out how to balance the messaging you know a few years ago unh the university of new hampshire's crimes against children research center um, came out with a piece of research that really looked at the falling rates of child sexual abuse over the last say 40 years and i'm sure you saw that research and there were some follow-up papers on it those kinds of things when that dropped in our field initially it was pretty controversial because you had children's advocacy centers seeing more kids than ever you know so they were seeing more of the population that needed to be seen and they were going, boy, it doesn't feel like it's falling to me. <laughs> um, and also, at the same time, they were hit up by a lot of adult survivors who were coming forward and whatever. And I think David Finkelhorn and others did a great job of explaining some of that research. But what I kept hearing when the controversy continued a little bit was fear, right, about somehow claiming the success. Do you know what I mean? Like, what would it mean if the public really believed that the situation was getting better? You know, is that a message we even want to proliferate that a difference has been made in it? And it, it seemed to tie to this fear that people would stop believing it was a big problem or it would somehow never break through in the public's thinking if they believed it was getting better. And, you know, how do you begin to approach those conversations? What do you even, what do you think about that? It's just been, it's been an interesting dilemma, I think, that our field has really been struggling with. 
Yeah, I mean, so you have to understand that my perspective on this is not as a member of the field. Sure. And I can understand those um, those worries and sensitivities and uh, and anxieties about what this might mean in terms of the public's thinking. So to me, I would, and obviously it needs to be framed carefully, but the fact that rates are falling, to me, evidences the fact that they can fall, which is a key component of supplying this issue with some efficacy, of combating the public's yeah. perception this, that this is an issue that will that is prevalent and will always be prevalent. Right? So in that way, if you have data, good data, that show that rates are dropping, are dropping you evidence the fact that they can drop. The challenge then is how do you keep your foot on the urgency side of the, yeah. of the that metaphor doesn't work, the whatever, urgency side the of the car, equation, whatever, yeah, right? Right. So, so that it doesn't just become, we've licked it, we've solved it. And any problem that has been solved is not one that people want to expend any resources in further solving. So it's this, again, it's this kind of framing, and these are all at kind of like master framer levels of, of, of a framing of nuance of using the fact that rates have fallen to illustrate the fact or the idea that they can fall and fall even further and fall even further with effort with further <laughs> efforts yeah and that they still remain and that this still remains an, an urgent issue on which more needs to be done let me ask you kind of a related question to the sense of urgency you know uh, when we talked about the measles example, one of the reasons you were pointing out that people feel the need to act urgently is the fact that kids are dying. Well, you know, the child abuse fatality rates in this country have been unchanged for two decades. I mean, it's still about 2,000 kids a year die um, because of child abuse, mostly neglect, um, very early in their lifespan, most of it under two or under three. And um, despite every effort so far that has been tried, We've had absolutely no impact on those numbers. I'd also say that I absolutely never hear anyone talk about this, except when the latest uh, article is in the newspaper that says this poor baby was shaken to death or this poor baby died in some other terrible way or the five-year-old that was in the paper this last week. So when death won't do it, in terms of driving a sense of urgency, what will? I mean, why is this something that even when you have the risk of death, somehow it doesn't feel eminent enough for action. Yeah, I mean, I again, I don't, I don't have an, and these are all good questions, I don't have, don't think I have an answer to any of them. But on this one, it is, I, I don't, so I think there's probably a way in which the continual reporting of statistics about fatalities begins to be tuned out. Oh, we're just inured to it. You know, it's, it's just, just like, this boom, is sad. Oh, boom, sad, boom. Yeah. And, and after a while, people become sensitized to that, and it doesn't cut through in order to have the urgency impact that, that it obviously should. Um, I think there's probably a way in which um, numbers are being framed in a way that uh, people in the field see them as urgent, but for people who are not, what were the numbers you just threw out? 2,000? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. there's a way in which people can hear those statistics and say, They're without context, kids, right. eh, that sounds, I mean, I'm, I don't mean to be insensitive no. here, but eh, that sounds about right. 
It sounds 0.001% it of sounds, something, right? It so. sounds not, I mean, is that big? Is that not big? You know, kids die, that's... Mm. And those really kids, right? And, and those, those families. Kids. So I think there's all there's a yeah. there's a series of answers. It's not one answer that explains mm-hmm. why those numbers don't provide the urgency for other people that they do for people who work on these issues. And and probably some practices of data presentation, some fact that they've been uh, repeatedly framed in ways that aren't effect aren't effective, and and people's ability to to kind of otherwise in that way that you just said that 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 keeps them from being urgent and so my recommendation there is there's probably ways other than using kind of bald statistics the 2000 which for some people that that can be more effective in providing people with with urgency Hmm. um and you'll also notice that those messages rarely if ever have anything that approaches an explanation like root cause why this is happening and certainly not a solution i think that's really true when i think about those stories there's always a neighbor who says i had no idea they seem like the nicest people right and there's always a sense that someone quote unquote snapped right which has to be the greatest myth and all of i don't know child abuses that people snap and so you'll have this five-year-old where there were at least five reports to CPS and multiple investigations and whatever. He dies. And you still get the story that's how could anyone have known, you know, yeah. the parents snapped. It's like, no, actually, where did, where did that myth come yeah. from? And is it as pervasive in other cultures as we seem to have it? The idea that a parent must somehow have temporary insanity for their child to be fatally abused. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a fantastic question. It is certainly a kind of probably based on a model of human behavior and understanding of parents and parenting, that that's the only way that people can that, that could happen, right? right? Yeah. It could only be a temporary moment of insanity because the way that we understand parents and kids is doesn't have room in it for, for that kind of behavior. So when you think about the messaging that you would like to see more of, you know, we, we can't control all the external messaging of the media or others, but the, the ones that we pay for anyway and the ones that we put out in the public domain and the presentations we do and the conversations we have, the billboards we buy, all of it, what would you like to see more of? So, I mean, I think we've talked about a number of problems, and I think what you, obviously, what you want to see is more effective ways of addressing those kind of deep cultural conceptual problems. Um, and I think you've you've just put your finger on one of them, which is that I think we do allow, I think the field does allow this this myth of snapping or whatever we want to call it, this myth of momentary lapses of sanity to persist. And I think that part of the reason that is is because the field isn't explaining the kind of ways in which contexts and experiences affect parents and feed into and cause issues of issues of abuse. So I think there is a there is a need to provide, and this sounds really wonky, and I'm not recommending the use of these words, but it's to provide a more contextual understanding of this as an issue and not just leave people to think that it's about, you know, lone parents who lose their minds for a moment, right? And as you said, that's actually not, that's not what's going on, right? It's about people in context who are being shaped and, yeah, 
So, so that's one. I think the other, the obvious one, is a whole lot more discussion on even the areas of the issue where there are solutions on those solutions. So if, as you said, there is great understanding, uh, good consensus around the types of supportive uh, practices that can be um, provided to children who have experienced trauma and abuse mm -hmm. that stand a reasonably to, you know, reasonable to good chance of addressing those those sources of adversity, that's something to, to message about. Like there needs to be more of a sense that this is not just a big, bad, dark, dire, and on fire issue, but rather it is, it is that, but it's also one about which things can be done. Um, and, then, and then the last one, we started our conversation kind of about otherizing. And I think there are all kinds of things that can be done so that people are less able to see um, the children involved in these these situations as being those kids over there and more likely that we're able to see them as kind of our kids. Um, and it'd be super interesting, we obviously don't have time for it on this, but to take some pieces of ecologically valid materials, communications mm -hmm. that, yeah. that organizations are putting out into the world and just analyze them from that perspective of othering at a, at oh, a big level or at a, yeah. at a very micro kind of linguistic level. And I, I would guess that that would be an eye-opening experience. Obviously, people in the field aren't meaning to do that. Right. But the degree in, in, of which that is such an implicit pattern of communication and is so easy to fall into and then the incredible detrimental effects that that practice has in terms of people's willingness and ability to engage with this issue. So when you think about this piece of research that you're involved in, the project between Frameworks and Johns Hopkins, Elizabeth Letourneau, can you just talk a little bit about what that intends to look at and the questions that you're hoping it will answer in this field? Because I think, you know, we're very interested and excited to see something funded in this area. Yeah, so um, it is a it's a super um, exciting project. I think Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth's work is is awesome, and I'm have been for four years really looking forward to working with her. And it's actually <laughs> it's going to happen. Uh, so that's that's, that's first of all that's fantastic, um, and largely it was because of her perseverance and willingness to make this happen. But it's a it, it's a project that's going to go through a couple of uh, phases and stages in terms of framing. And the first one, which I'm probably I shouldn't say this because I'm least involved with, but most excited about, is um, is something we've talked about. So before you can do any communications work, you have to figure out what what the core pieces of knowledge are mm -hmm. that are scientifically solid around mm -hmm. which there is consensus mm -hmm. that that need to be communicated. So that's the first question: is what as a field, and I guess when I say field here, I'm talking about the slice and sector of the field that does preventative work mm -hmm. um, on child sexual abuse. What are the the ideas that are emerging from research around the prevention of this issue that are, as one of our partners says, ready for prime time, yeah. that, that need to be communicated. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. Step two is a better, uh, less anecdotal understanding than the one that I've just supplied to you for the last <laughs> half an hour of around how members of the public actually think about these issues. Yeah. Um, what explains why they so easily disengage? What explains kind of all of these patterns that people recognize when they communicate. Um, so that's kind of, I think about that as the stories that people are telling themselves about this issue without knowing it frequently. And then probably the most important part um, is in prescriptively 
working on some strategies and testing them that can um, shift, expand, move thinking and, and public discourse about the issue forward in productive, in productive directions. Uh, and that's the work of, of kind of what is the story the field should be telling. Uh, and that's the really exciting part. That's the part that's going to generate a, a strategy that people who work on, yeah. on these issues can hopefully kind of systematically and consistently share and use in their communications to avoid some of the problems that we've talked about. Now, if I'm remembering right, it's going to be a little while before that research is done, right? So when are we expecting that we'll know more? Yeah, so I think, um, and obviously I'm not the only one who's making decisions here, or I'm not even one who is making decisions <laughs> here. Uh, but there is, uh, I mean, the project will take, I mean, I think Elizabeth has five years five of years, funding. Yeah. Our work is primarily within the first year and a half to two years I of see. that. Yeah. Uh, but there is, we answer those questions that I just went through in sequence. So if we are permitted to share findings yeah. and results as we roll, there right. will be things available from that first piece probably within six months, within a year, uh, that second piece, and probably within a year and a half on the kind of more of the prescriptive answers, the reframing strategy. Well, we were so pleased to be included in that project. And yeah. I mean, I think our field is just, uh, you know, anxiously awaiting the yeah. research results because I think it's going to be so informative to our future messaging since all of us have been in a certain way messaging in the dark for some time, yeah. really, in the absence of that research. So is there any question that I haven't asked you that you think I should have or anything that you say, this is the one thing I'd like to leave the field with from this conversation? I said it, and I guess I'll emphasize it. Um, and, and this is actually something you said, not that I said, but the, the, the persistence and the perniciousness of this understanding or lack of understanding of what causes the issue. So a lot of the work that we do is premised around the idea that if you can make people smarter about what causes an issue, you can set them up to be better reasoners going mm -hmm. forward about any solution that comes in front of them. And I think that um, a better answer to your first question of what do I find so surprising is the incredible lack of understanding among members of the public of any idea other than monstrous individuals yeah. of what of what causes this issue and of the total lack and again this is wonky of a contextual perspective it's like these are isolated horrible individuals that lose their sanity or are just monstrous and that's the cause and and in and as individuals they are not in any context that's influencing their behavior. Or, and can't be understood, right? right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, and related to that, I think maybe that's one reason it also hasn't attracted the level of funding, you know, from a public policy perspective that we'd like to see. I was really pleased to see that there's a piece of legislation that seems to be gaining ground, which Elizabeth has been very involved in, looking at funding child sexual abuse prevention for the first time specifically. Yeah. You know, the research questions that need to be answered. So you know, fingers crossed yep. that, that's, that that's productive. Well, thank you so much for your time with us and all the work that you're doing. We're gonna be anxiously awaiting your results. Great, thank you so, very much. It was good to be with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to One in 10, 
We hope you'll tune in for the next episode when we'll talk to award-winning actor, author, and comedian Daryl Hammond and filmmaker Michelle Ezrick about their powerful documentary, Cracked Up. In this film, Michelle explores the story of Daryl's childhood and how too often society treats the smoke instead of the fire. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.